Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the Life Wisdom Podcast, a special podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Brian Collins, who is Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Classics and Religious Studies at Ohio University. Um, Dr. Collins is a scholar of um, ancient Indian mythology, the topic of our talk today. So, Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rod. It's great to be here. Yeah, and for those of you listening, we may cross-post another interview I did with Brian specifically on his his new book on the mythology of Parushurama, which I'm sure we'll talk about over the course of our interview, but there exists an interview between the two of us on that book, which we'll post to the notes for this podcast. But, you know, let's get to the frame story behind that book and really all of your publications and and share with us, you know, how you stumbled down this rabbit hole of Indian myth and like, you know, how did you end up uh, doing what you do? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I've some I actually thought about recently, um, partly as 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 I was also doing another interview about about Padishrama with R.T. Dund, who you had on this on this same show, and uh, it is a you know it, it's it's not a real natural path for anybody from my background to end up with uh, with Sanskrit myth. I first went to college in '94, and I wanted to be a filmmaker. I dropped out after a few weeks and lived some life and then went back uh, in 96, 97 to study, 97 to study psychology. And I took a class on Hinduism with a guy named Tony Stewart, who was a graduate of the University of Chicago Divinity School and a student of the great um, Bengali scholar, uh, Edward C. Dimmock. And in the Hinduism class, I really just got fascinated. And I don't really remember why or what fascinated me or what I even read. But I knew that I, I wanted to do something more like what he was doing rather than what people were doing in the psychology department. So I added a second major. I continued to take classes with him on Hinduism. I took a class on Buddhism, um, and I took some classes on Judaism and American religions with some other really good scholars at North Carolina State. And I decided at the end of it that I was going to see if I could continue to study this stuff. And I applied to the University of Chicago, and I got in there at the Divinity School, and I worked with, uh, with Wendy Doniger. But my interests really were in the Puranas, and then you know, sort of two very different things: the Puranas, Puranic mythology, the the stories that I read in the in the classical Hindu myths reader, uh, and Vedic ritual, which I got fascinated by ever since I saw the documentary Altar of Fire in my first Hinduism class. And so those two things are, you know, now I see the relation between them, but but they weren't it wasn't it wasn't apparent at first if I was going to be able to bring those things together. Uh, and as I studied at the University of Chicago, sort of, I thought about different things. I thought about sacrifice as my sort of primary interest, the rituals of sacrifice. I thought about switching to Aztec work, but I wanted to stay with Wendy because she was my teacher. And I discovered around that time the Mahabharata, which I had read a little bit of, 
Uh, I'd read a novelization of it, I should say, uh, as part of a, and uh, as an undergraduate. But I took, I, I TA'd a class on Mahabharata with her. She was, she was translating the last book, and that's when I discovered Padasharama and this, these stories of of the epic, which of course also connect to stories of the Purana and also connect to the ancient Vedic ritual, and that's what. That's what I sort of I went with um, that brought my interest together. I mean, I don't know how it all ended up there, except for what I told you, because you know originally I took a Hinduism class because I was reading uh, Kierkegaard and uh, and Carl Jung, and I wanted to see what an Eastern religion was about, as as as, uh, as you know many of us do, and so I, I quickly got all that shaken out of me, uh, the Eastern religion idea. But it was, in fact, the only reason why I ever took a class on Hinduism, the only reason why I ever ended up with the Mahabharata was a very uh, Orientalist idea of, uh, of religion. So I, whenever I hear about, about that in students, you know, I, I understand that it is a pathway out, is a pathway to something else. And to discount it as, as ignorant, you know, maybe it is, uh, but it's also, uh, it's also a sort of a, a necessary uh, skillful means it's a it's a i think it's a form of skillful means upaya yeah upaya um yeah that's great it, it, it as cliche as it is it's often the case that these texts pick us or so it seems these stories grip us you know in some ways and and it's it's you know studying uh indian myth or sanskrit narrative i mean um it touches on so many interests and passions uh, of, of various stripes, um, uh, literature, philosophy, psychology, and perhaps, perhaps indeed life wisdom, who knows? Um, you mentioned that you were really gripped by the story of Parashurama. Tell us a, a, a bit, you know, who is this Parashurama? What's he all about? Well, to, to understand Parashurama, you have to go back actually one generation because he is a character whose story begins before he's born, like frequently happens in the Mahabharata. So his, uh, his, his, there was a princess named Satyavati who married a Brahmin named Ruchika from the Brigu clan. And, uh, and so they have a princess married to a Brahmin as a wedding gift. The progenitor of the clan Brigu himself comes and, uh, offers the new daughter-in-law a boon and she says i want to give birth to a saintly brahmin for my brahmin husband and my mother wants to give birth to a warrior you know a a, a top level kshatriya for her kshatriya husband because her family were kshatriya warrior class and so he infused two um bowls of rice pudding one with kshatriya essence one with brahmin essence they switched the they switched them unfortunately and uh, satyavati learned that she, because she drunk the wrong rice pudding, was going to give birth to a Brahmin with the inner nature of a Kshatriya. And so she begged him to defer the curse, as she called it, for one generation. And so that was, uh, so she gave birth to a regular Brahmin named Jamadagni, and his son was the one that was afflicted with the uh, nature bestowed by the mixed up ritual. So it's, it's interesting, this character has already been rejected by a mother that he never knew just because of who he was, because of what she did. So he sort of starts off in an odd position. And, and the first thing that he really does to gets him 
in the story is he walks in on his father arguing with his mother. His father, uh, because he has yogic sight, knew that his mother had been watching another man bathe at the river and had wet herself, poured the water she was, spilled the water she was supposed to be gathering on herself and come back with wet clothes. He deduced that she had been, inf- uh, you know, uh, committed a mental infidelity, as he called it. And so Padashrama walked in and his father said, you know, chop her head off. She's done evil. So he just, without asking questions, chopped her his mother's head off. And then uh, his father said, well, you've done so well. You followed my instructions without question. What can I do for you? He said, please bring my brother, my, bring my mother back to life and uh, make everybody forget that this ever happened. And so he does that. And so the, the, his, first, his first interaction with his mother in the story is to chop her head off without knowing what's going on, coming in the middle of, a, of, a, uh, of an argument. Later on, uh, a king comes and steals the cow from his uh, hermitage. And in, in retaliation, he goes back, steals the cow back and kills the king. The king's sons then kill his father. And he swears uh, revenge on all the Kshatriya class, which is also his mother's class, and eliminates 21 generations of them, which means that he kills every male Kshatriya on earth, waits for the pregnant women to give birth, waits for those sons to come of age, impregnate more women, and kills them, and does it 21 times, and then fills five lakes of blood. And the five lakes of blood become... uh, with the space in the center of them becomes the great battlefield in which the epic battle of the Mahabharata takes place. Uh, so that's, that's the story. It's when I heard the story, I, I couldn't believe that nobody had really done much work on it. It was so completely over the top with violence and symbolism uh, that, that I said, you know, there's gotta be something. And it was, there was one German book uh, that was, that was very German text criticism, not particularly gripping. Not, and it definitely made the story a lot more boring than it was. Uh, and so I thought, well, this is something I can do. I can uh, I can work on Parushurama. And, and then I found out a lot of his mythology ends up in these Puranas that are some of them in Malayalam and and uh, and, and, and in Tamil. And so uh, it was it became a lot it was a lot bigger than I thought when I wanted to take him outside of Mahabharata. But that's what I wanted to do was to look at this story, which was to me and also to the myth makers, I think. Um, kind of difficult to make sense of or to deal with and see what it told us about the people made it, the people who heard it, and then by extension, you know, ourselves. And so that's the perfect segue into some of the themes, um, some of what you decode or you posit or you argue in terms of what does this tell us about um, the myth makers or even more broadly uh, the human experience? What on earth is this myth about? Well, I think that I think it's about uh, one thing that you can learn about from the myth is the way that symbols work. Well, symbols have power, and they have power because they communicate some cultural meaning, which could be political, and I think cultural and political are kind of uh, they go hand in hand. A cultural meaning is a way of understanding how a group is constituted and who's in it and who's out of it. But they're only power. Otherwise, if it's just a cultural message, it's propaganda. It's just um, somebody somebody uh, getting up on a soapbox and telling you how to live. If it's a symbol, though, it reaches down into unconscious motivations. 
And that's why how it gets anchored. And that's how it communicates, because it communicates something unconscious about the myth makers to something unconscious about the audience. And I think that has to do with the family unit and the different ways in which our childhoods shape our uh, our our outlook. Um, this this is a story of a trauma that is repressed. I mean, you cannot chop your mother's head off, put it back on and go about your daily business and pretend like nothing ever happened, which is exactly what he does. But then when you go further into the myth, you see that everybody knew that. And in the South, the story is, no, he couldn't put her head back on. He put the wrong head on. And so he ended up with a mother with somebody else's head on it, her body and his mother's head on somebody else's body, or sometimes just a living head that he set up and worshiped. And so uh, this, the idea of the mother and the sort of aggression toward the mother and what it costs um, is, is really, is really worked out in these Southern um, Puranic and temple legends about him becoming a a servant deity to the great goddess that is his mother. His father has nothing to do with any, anything down there. Sometimes he's got a small shrine in the corner of the, of the Renuka, which is his mother's name, um, temple complex. But generally speaking, Jerma Dugni is um, the father of Padasharama is not, doesn't have much to say or do. It is all about this, man's relationship with his mother. This is one of the, this is the only avatar, human avatar who does not have a consort or a wife. He is one of the few Hindu heroes along with Bhishma who does not ever marry. Uh, Bhishma and him have a very difficult relationship as well. Uh, and so I think that he's supposed to stand out as a, as a sort of a symbol of, I mean, not unlike Oedipus, I think that there's there's a complex here that he represents a certain way in which maternal um, uh, sort of feelings towards the mother uh, create a certain kind of person or a certain kind of deep seated outlook, and and I think that 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 then that's why it resonates with people, and then it can be used to talk about the power of Brahmins and their place in society and how they are a lot more powerful than they look when provoked, which I think was a very popular message at the time the Mahabharata was being composed when Brahmins felt like they were being pushed um, to the edges of a, of the, of the world as it was changing and the second urbanization and, and what have you. Uh, and so, so I really got interested in those two things, the cultural meanings of the myth, which have continued to change in a, up to the present day. And what I think is it is is why it resonates, which is that it it talks about a child's very difficult, uh, impossible to understand relationship with their parents. Oh, well, well, we've had a, a a wide range of scholars and and um, seekers, practitioners of various stripes for this series. It just so happens that we have in common this affinity, uh, this this draw, this captivation. Um, um, leaning towards um, mythological narratives of ancient India, Indian myth. And one of the things I rub up against frequently is this idea of myth, and there seems to be various crowds. And um, I, I wish that it was uh, universally accepted, but it's not. Um, when we say myth, we don't mean that four-letter word that means, you know, some 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 mistake to be corrected. You know, I think it's such that a mythological narrative is extraordinarily powerful and lives and need not necessarily be taken literally or historically. 
to really unleash the power of myth because it, it speaks to aspects of selves that, that, that live on generation after generation and definitely across cultures and, and walks of life. And so, you know, this to me is the real value of such narratives. I'm currently teaching a course at, um, I have an online space called the School of Indian Wisdom, and I'm teaching a course on uh, the myths of the grahas, planetary myths and their significance. And so the other day I was teaching on Mangal, uh, the planet Mars. And, um, uh, you know, uh, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. So the saying goes in English anyhow. And in order to communicate what Mangal's all about, I look to the mythology of Kartikeya, Skanda. And when you're talking about Padushuram, I'm like, yes, you know, you can. there's sort of a Venn diagram. Um, 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 Skanda Kartikeya also has this sort of nebulous, um, uh, problematized, intriguing relationship to motherhood in that he's an orphan who ends up being suckled by six mothers. So we see these intriguing themes in Indian myth. And, um, you know, could you say a bit more about... Um, the utility or sort of the the power of these narratives are the relevance, right? Like, is this relevant stuff? Is this just stuff for understanding ancient India? Like, say a bit more about uh, perhaps uh, how one can relate to these narratives in uh, presently. Well, that's uh, first of all, I love the idea of myths of the grahas, as I, I showed you. I, I've become very interested in Shanishtara, the Saturn. Um, the myths and the rituals of Saturn, which I discovered in Mumbai. At some point, maybe in another lifetime, I'm going to do something with that. Uh, but, you know, to answer your question, so I think myths, uh, right, myths aren't, you can't bust a myth like you do on Mythbusters. If one thing to say that, you, yes, you won't explode if you drink Diet Coke and eat Mentos at the same time. But talking about the stories of Indian mythology, um, you know, these are these are not these are not simple explanations of uh, of his. Or, these are not like historical records gone out of proportion. These are not um, mistaken natural philosophy. Uh, though this is a this is a way to try to understand the sort of deepest truths about about um, humanity as its other authors understood them. Uh, so I, I would say that a myth is. It, it, we have to deal with it now. It's relevant now because. Myth is a story to me that is that is that is about events that is not witnessed by either the teller or the audience. It's something that happened in a time out of mind, in a different time that nobody else was there for, uh, and who's who's there at the time of the telling. And it's something that expresses what a society value, what its audience and mythmakers value, and what they're anxious about, what their anxieties are. And so I think those are the those are the most important things about myth. They express values and anxieties and encapsulated in a worldview. Uh, so when a myth though goes beyond its place of telling and continues to be passed on, and it uh, it then changes its meaning. Uh, so this is an example I give in the book, um, the Polish Rama book, that the story of of Hercules is actually a very tragic story. Hercules um, goes insane and kills his family. But our modern image of Hercules is just a very strong guy who wears a lion's mane. 
And, but but and so this was sort of what was happening when the in 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 the uh, 18th century when post-revolutionary France was looking for a non-Christian, non-ecclesiastical sort of image, and they started they thought about building a giant statue of Hercules. But then you know as the terror continued, people thought, well maybe we don't want to embrace this figure who goes insane and kills his entire family just as we are. Right. mass executions in the public square with a guillotine. And so they gave up on the idea uh, because it, although they, 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 one aspect of the myth sort of pro- appealed to them, the strength, the sort of uh, the human, the human, the power of the human, the other aspects of the myth were still there and they made themselves sort of known as they looked, as, as they, as they are, uh, as, as the sort of background changed and as they thought more deeply about it, the myth carries with it baggage which influences the way that we read it, but is also in turn, you know, gradually, I think, and more gradually shaped by the ways in which it's read. Uh, so it's a story that stays alive because its meaning is inexhaustible simply because it's not bound to a time and a place. And every time it's told, the meaning slightly changes according to the teller and the circumstances. And so therefore, it's by definition, well, by my definition anyway, always relevant. That's uh, beautifully said. I think of these narratives as sort of, you know, the love child of the sociocultural and uh, the psychospiritual, and so I think it's 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 fairly um, easy to fall into the trap of emphasizing exclusively or primarily one or the other, understanding the narrative simply in the context, thinking that it is solely a function of the conditioning of the of a moment in history and of an individual's life. And then there is the other extreme of talking about timeless time and, you know, um, not understanding how it was functioning in its culture and, and, and to what, what conditioning gave rise to this articulation. And I think part of the challenge is because, um, uh, uh, mythological narratives do this brilliant, brilliant tightrope walk between the two where they are, so much a product uh, of and responding to the needs, the hopes, the fears, as you say, the anxieties of their of their authorship, and yet they're grappling with stuff that <laughs> every single human being grapples with in some way, shape, or form. You have to say more about what you said in passing just now about myths of Shaneshira, uh Lord Saturn. Um, um, I'll be doing, uh, I think this week I'm doing Shukran Shaneshira. Um, but but tell me more about that. I'm, I'm intrigued in terms of your 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 draw. Well, uh, I was when I was doing a study, the last study abroad that we were able to do before the pandemic uh, shut that down for the time being. We were in Mumbai, and I was outside the temple, and I can't remember which one. It was one of the ones on the looks out on the ocean on the on the um, on the sea. And there were all these stalls selling the images of Shanishtara. And I said, this looks exactly like um, a, a Polynesian tiki or f- fetish doll. I mean, the same ex- the exaggerated features, very bold lines. Like if you've ever seen a tiki, it looks uncannily like Shaneshchara. And so, you know, I mean, it, uh, I, although I do accept the idea that uh, there's an Austronesian substrate in India and that the Munda speaking people and Austroasiatic Austro- uh, speaking people were in India and moved all the way down into eventually into Australia. 
long, long ago. I, I think it's I think it's probably coincidence the way that they look. But uh, when I learned about this figure, which about which very little has been written, that he is a an ill omen. I know a friend who was born on a Saturday and was advised to always do uh, on Saturdays worship of Shanishara with um, metal and with iron and milk, and uh, and this is a this is a a god that. Um, sort of like Rudra in the Rig Veda that you want to be to sort of either not notice you or to take pity on you rather than and, and sort of try to stay on the good side of, of Shanishchara. So I I really want to know more about the astrological um background of this and then the and how that then becomes um a devo- not a devotional practice, but a ritual practice. Uh and and in a sort of a, a life a life practice. It was supposedly, it's supposed to be um, for someone who was born on Saturday, a regular thing. So it's it's a part of Hindu, like most parts of Hinduism, has eluded me because it's such a massive system. And um, I'm, you know, not having been born into it, you really, you know, things that people who live their first 10 or 15 years um, in a country with a Hindu majority would understand intuitively, you know, if you've never seen it, you don't know it. Uh, so it's one of those things where I would like to get further into that and see what this figure means to people and and how uh, he's incorporated into their worldview. I mean, this is just like I would think about Parashurama. What, what does this – people are using a thing so they understand something about themselves and about the world around them or else they would just not do it. So what well, what is it here that I should know? This exchange uh, that I'm having with you presently is um, astonishingly synchronistic in that just before this call, I uploaded a video to the school. It was a recording of a live tutorial. So there's pre-recorded content every week. And then you know, the best part is the live, for me anyhow, the live interaction to kind of see how things land, answer things in the moment. And <laughs> Uh, a major theme this morning. It wasn't part of the course, but I, because of their interest, I think I'll put in a slide on um, puja or ritual associated with the Navagrahas. I mean, the, the course is very much about, um, you know, decoding the narratives of the grahas with an eye to the human experience. And that very question was asked, you know, um, uh, from someone who grew up in a Hindu home, uh, who, you know, whether you're, uh, part of the culture or not part of the culture, uh, very few people begin to have an understanding or a theorization in terms of why these practices are done and how the system works. Um, and we were talking about the extent to which the grahas are seen as sort of the, the messengers of karma, right? Various flavors, the Baskin Robbins of the human experiences dished out by these these nine. <laughs> These nine uh, messengers, so to speak, um, we're talking about the ways in which they're propitiated and the kinds of remediation that's prescribed, uh, whether it's going to do sort of a puja of a murti at the temple of the Navagrahas, whether it is something, uh, some kind of service. So if the karaka for Shani is um, servants or the elderly, you know, serve the elderly, or whether it's like, you know, sesame seeds are somehow auspicious to or connected to Shani. So, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Feed crows. You know, crows are the, the vana, the vehicle of Shani. And it's really, it's extraordinary to me how intimately integrated the ritual, the mythology, the practice is. I mean, 
uh, everything from Vastu, uh, which is sort of like, I guess, ancient Indian feng shui to Jyotisha, ancient Indian astrology and astronomy to the Puranas, the mythology to the, the practices, they're so intricately intertwined in ways that I think few dive into so I could understand your intrigue about the relationship people have to this entity known as Shani. You know, one of the things that came out of my mouth just an hour before we're talking is that, you know, in the Indic context, people just fear the word Shani. You know, it's just no, it's like, no, bad luck. Uh, And at the same time, you have folks who are saying, no, he's your best friend, depending on how you relate to it. So it's endlessly fascinating. I'm going to share the content with you if you want it with the, the so I'll share it with you. Definitely. You but, sound like, you know, a lot more about Shani than I do. Well, what do I know? I mean, I have the easy job of asking questions on this podcast. What the heck do I know? But I'm happy to chat with you more than happy to chat with you about these things. Um, I'll share the content that I'm uploading to the school. That might be fun for you to look at. Um, it, so, Aside from your interest in Shani and your interest in Parashurama, are there other characters that come to mind that you've been recently working on that you find uh, intriguing in some way? Well, yeah, you know, so uh, we, 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 you very kindly solicited an article for me for a Mahabharata um, collection that's coming out, which I'm looking forward to reading because of all the other people in it. But it, it was an opportunity for me to, fill three sort of lacuna in the uh, lacuna in the Padasharama book. So in order to keep things manageable, I sort of left out his um, relationship with Umba Shikundan, the warrior, the princess who turns into a male warrior and is reborn uh, to destroy Bhishma uh, because, uh, it, well, anyway, and I had an opportunity to look at, that story for the article that uh, for the essay that I wrote for you. And then I had an opportunity to look at his connection to Drona and Ashvataman, the two other major Brahmin warriors of the epic in a essay that I wrote for an Italian publication that I think is out in Italy now. Uh, it's, I gave a, a, a paper on the topic in March of 2019 uh, in uh, Naples. And the third one, if to fill out this, the to sort of fill out the last hole, I would like to write something about focus entirely on Parashurama's cursing of Karna, who is the eldest of the Kauravas, the the bad guys of the Mahabharata epic. Sorry, he's the eldest of the Pandavas, the good guys, but he fights on the side of the Kauravas because he's rejected as a child by his mother uh, and sent down the river like Moses. Um, and sort of like Parashurama is 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 uh, raised as a half cat. Actually, he's raised as a sutta, which, according to the laws of Manu, is Kshatriya Brahmin, uh, half uh, Varna. Uh, and and he he learns the magic weapon under Parashurama that he used he used to destroy his arch enemy uh, Arjuna. And if you look at Arjuna, is the great hero of the epic. But if you look at him through the eyes of Karna, he is the biggest blowhard and the most insufferable character because he is a braggart and he is completely oblivious to the fact that he has sworn to kill his elder brother, which is an incredibly adharmic and sinful act. Karna knows this and allows it all to happen because of uh, his own bonds of honor, that he he has pledged himself to the eldest Korova, 
and that to him is unbreakable. And, and so once he said, this is, and he also says, you know, in the epic, this, his mother says, oh, don't go into this battle and because you're going to either kill your brothers or your brother's going to kill you. It'll be a catastrophe. And he says, where were you when I was being humiliated by all the Pandavas in the, uh, and, and be talked down to because of my low birth in the, you know, in, in the, uh, in the contest that he tried to get into with, with Arjuna in the epic. And of course it's a lot of epic stuff that readers will have to, but it just takes too long to get the backstory here. And so Karna is an, just such a modern character, such an, such an existentially imagined character. He could have come out of Dostoevsky or Camus, uh, just an incredible literary creation. And um, his death is ultimately brought about by Parashurama, uh, who, who curses him because of his hatred of, of Kshatriyas, uh, and and so uh, there that 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 needs to be. I need to explore that relationship between these two men, uh, which is goes from being pupil student to being you know, um, the cause of one's cause of death of the other, and so that is that will be and that I think will close out for me the Padmasrama work that I need to do which I started back in 2005 or whatever. It'll close out what you signed up for in this, in this birth. Got it. Um, <laughs> it's endlessly fascinating to me. Um, uh, um, I just come keep coming back to this idea of the interplay between Brahmanas and Kshatriyas or between sort of nonviolence and then justified violence or, or violence run amok either or, and this idea of the Dharmic double helix just plays in my brain because in so many of these narratives, you just have like a, a great encapsulation of that double helix is this porridge. You know, one bit of porridge is Brahmin porridge. <laughs> one bit of porridge is warrior porridge. And then they're switched. There's this oscillation in, uh, between the two and these characters where they're of one and they behave like the other and they're so instrumental in the advancing of the Mahabharata. Um what do you think? Why do you think Brahmins and Kshatriyas are, are always in such close quarters uh, uh, mythologically? Or what? What do you think that that? What are the myth makers trying to tell us, either about ancient India themselves or even life in general? Do you think by doing so? Well, you know, I'm actually reading Fritz Stahl's uh, "Discovering the Vedas" now, which is an absolutely incredible book. I mean, he's this is a man who's mastery of the text in the not not just the Vedas but well beyond that is I mean there's there's not going to be another Fritz Stahl they're not going to ever see another Fritz Stahl this this is this is a this is a giant this passed away um, but he's talking about Kshatriyas and Brahmins and how in Vedic India we don't see this dichotomy that Dumezil the great Indo-European is speculated about and yet later it is certainly there it looks a lot like what you see in Arthurian myth with Merlin and Arthur, or in um, the three um, temples of Rome, the to to uh, to the god of war, the god of agriculture, and uh, the god of magic, sovereign power. So there's there's a pattern where there's a there's a there's a I don't want to say it's a group of people because I don't know if it ever was a group of people, but there is an imagined idea of a power that is possessed by a certain kind of person and power possessed by another. And they need each other, uh, to, to, to rule what the magic power to communicate with the gods and to, and I think magic is, is a better way to think about it because mantra 
is is what Brahmins have. They have um, anybody can pray to the gods. Kshatriyas get things. The gods do things for them all the time. But the Brahmins have mantra. They have shakti. Yes, 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 exactly. And so uh, I think that it part of it is clearly to me that at the time of the epic, people who associate themselves with this power and who were the ones who possessed the knowledge of Veda um, wanted to assert, wanted to reimagine themselves in the world as powerful figures when in fact they were in danger of being um, pushed out by by well-organized Buddhist and other um, heterodox uh, groups. And so part of it is, is that as a message of Kshatri is to say, this is what we do. This is why, why this is what, who we are. We are this trans local um, connected group that shares orally transmitted knowledge uh, and man magic power. That's part of it. And the other part of it is I think, and this is in the early Vedic uh, in the Vedic commentarial literature that there is, is part of within everybody, there is a, a sort of a duality. And um, and what you said about oscillation or a sort of a helix, I mean, I think this is very important. I think that I think that setting things up to be a sort of almost a flickering image of the thing and its opposite superimposed on one another, what Eliade called the coincidence, the coincidental opposatorum, uh, is is a way of speaking to something more general. And that's why I think otherwise it would just be a very shallow propagandistic tract about the mighty Brahmins who the warriors need to, to um, purify them of their sins of battle. But it's not just that it is, it is also uh, a, about the multipleness or the dualness. I think more than the multipleness of, um, of being. And, uh, and that's why it continues to get reworked and picked up well after this situation, this historical situation that gave birth to it, um, passes into something else. It's so, um, it's so fascinating and great to hear you say that I couldn't agree more actually. Um, the concept I was referring to, um, what's what I call it? The Dharmic double helix that sort of in the Mahabharata, you have probably the most overt articulation of poverty and nivriti, but not just poverty and nivriti, this very, you know, the ideology of the Brahmins and the ideology of the Kshatriyas. And this is much more ancient India has had the opportunity to dramatize and to play with this tension that's human. It's a tension of the inner and the outer. It's a tension of pragmatism and idealism. It's the tension. It's, it's why Rama is the face of it. You know, he's a, He's uh, Rama, I mean, Rama, the son of uh, Dashrata. Rama, you know, I mean, it's a ridiculous thing for a ruler to do, to abandon his kingdom because of a silly promise that some conniving, now conniving wife makes. And he does it because he's honoring this other level of Dharma. And he says, you know, it's not Chathriya Dharma that I'm in this world for. It's this higher order Dharma. And, and, and yet he has to come back and he has to rule and he has to fight and he has to wield his, his weapons. And, this is why I think the, the double helix is a, it's like these two strands that are always opposed and will never meet, but yet they are sort of interwoven into this optical illusion of this, 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 this unified entity. And I think part of the reason why um, the epics are so long lived and so relevant is because they, they comment on this tension. I mean, the, the Kings have to go in the forest and then they have to come back to the throne. And these are, that's this op- oscillation, I think. 
enough about me and my pontificating, more about you and your insights. Um, um, well, so Amba, what do you say about Amba? Well, uh, so I, I think that Amba is a creature of the epic like Padasharama and that she is created by the epic authors. We don't see her before. She really st- is, is makes sense in the context of the epic, but unlike the other figures, which took on lives of their own afterwards, uh, she doesn't really. Uh, so I think that there is, and this, you know, we, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. I, I Other people have said this, Visha Lori and, and others um, have made the comment that she seems to be representing Dorga, uh, the battlefield goddess, who is also the, sort of a barely uncontrolled force that the gods uh, utilize. And I think this is just happens to be a great metaphor for nuclear weaponry. This is a thing that once you once you started it, you cannot ever stop. You can't ever get rid of it. Uh, it's always with you. And um, the threat of it just hangs over f- the rest of the world forever. And so she is she is this force that once they release it, they can barely control it. So she's the battlefield goddess Dorga who probably originally came from West Asia. Um, but I think that her, her role, her relationship to Padusharama is one of the sort of as one of the facets of his character. Okay. So it's, so when you think about the context of the Epic, there were some major devotional cults that Kings local and smaller Kings post uh, the breakup of the big empires were practicing uh, the worship of Vishnu, the worship of the goddess the worship of the sun and uh, the worship of Shiva. And so he is a devotee. Parashram is a devotee of Shiva, but he's also a Navatara, a Vishnu. And he's also a servant of the goddess. And in small parts of the epic, he's connected to the sun who gives Jamadagni his uh, power. And in fact, in one story, Jamadagni shoots down the sun uh, for burning his wife's skin, uh, giving her a sunburn. So he's he's connected to these to these gods. I think it's not an accident. I think it's a way to sort of ingratiate this symbolic figure to all, whatever your you know your deity of choice is. You see something in Padishrama that looks like it, it it belongs to you. And kings did kings kings identified themselves with this man whose purpose in life was to kill kings. Interesting, you know, sort of transvaluation of values there. Uh, but I think that that. What happens in the story is he loses in this duel where he's supposed to be protecting Amba's honor. He cannot defeat his his previous student, Bhishma, and withdraws from the epic and from the world. And so what happens, Amba has to take care of things herself. She becomes Shikundan. She becomes the warrior. And uh, the rest, you know, is is the rapid sort of escalation to the destruction of, of Bhishma on the battlefield as all the warriors in the Pandava army line up behind her in the form of a man. But somehow, even though every other figure who's reborn in a different gender is recognized as that gender in their life, he recognizes her, him as a female and can't fire an arrow and then dies or gets so so full of arrows that he can't move. He can't die until he wants to. And he picks the perfect astrological time for that to happen. So, this is a story of, of the goddess erupting into the epic 
um, just like I think Ashvataman, who is very closely connected to Parashurama as well, is a story of Shiva erupting into the epic as a destructive force, a powerful uh, aspect of the god. Uh, so, and, and he he then he becomes here a subservient character, and in fact, you see borne out and Alfhiltabaitel, who's I'm working on a paper about his work now, which is, and I put it together his. Partial by a partial sort of listing of his work takes up as much space as Bebek de Broy's translation of the epic does. So I've already gotten up to a whole, I call it Hiltabarata. It's a massive, massive body of work. But one of the things he says, and this I think is really important, is that you have to sometimes read the read the epic predictively. It has things that don't that aren't really attested until later religion until attested by history until later religious developments. And so um, I think Parashurama's later history is that he does become a, a guardian God of the powerful goddess in which he is a lowly servant. And that is uh, sort of the ritual, um, uh, the ritual continuation of this story. That's um, fascinating. <laughs> this uh, conversation's obviously not scripted, uh, but there. I mean, um, I've taken a look at Durga once or twice uh, <laughs> in my own work. <laughs> my 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 doctoral work uh, and first book was on the Devi Mahatmya, the, the the narratives of Durga. So there is obviously this theme there that's resonant with Parashurama, who is this um, fierce warrior entity. Who is, would you say, ultimately a Brahmin? Yes, I would say ultimately Brahmin. And so, when you look at Mahishasura um, Mardani or any form of Durga, where she's she's depicted as 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 beautiful and poised, you know, the Brahmin's heart is soft as butter, has compassion for the demons, but um, but uh, incisive and and potentially maniacal in her ability to get the job done, because you know you need you need the nukes for this. Nothing else will work there's that tension there's that encapsulation so unsurprisingly perhaps there is this mythological thread that runs through both and i really like what you say about um umba uh, erupting into the epic much as uh shiva does through ashvataman uh, i think that's compelling and and who can f- uh, part of the very um, um uh, the, the very um uh, conceptualization ideation the part of the very fabric of the essence of durga is invincibility. And who can defeat Bhishma? You know, how can Bhishma be defeated? Right? And so there's there's another thread there that I think is fascinating. Oh, so rich. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Bhishma is the immovable object, and she's the only thing that can, she's the irresistible force. I think also you have a connection there in the prevalence of blood in the mythology, blood which is antithetical to the Vedic sacrifice, but which was probably always part of a different kind of sacrifice. It was not Brahminical, but was practiced in India. But so you have, uh, you have, I, I think, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, um, you know, this is a footnote and I've written about this before, but I've sort of written, I think I've written about it three times now, but a little bit more each time has been added to it. That when I look at the marriage of Surya in the Rig Veda, uh, I see uh, it's a very strange part of the story of, of the of the story where it, it tells the reader or the listener that um, 
on the wedding night when the sheet is stained with blood, um, that stained sheet will become a demoness who will possess the husband uh, if he tries to enter it to have sex with it. Basically, it sounds like it becomes a double of the wife. And it has to be, what has to happen, it has to be disposed of and cut up by the priests, and then it won't happen. But if it if it is just left blood on the sheet, uh, and I, I guess I guess there's some kind of a sheet happening in a in a wedding night in Vedic India, although it doesn't seem like a place where you see sheets, but it clearly says something, some kind of garment becomes stained with blood. Uh, then it becomes an uncontrollable demoness. And so I've been thinking about this. I've been reading a lot of David Gordon White's recent work about Eurasian, um, uh, sort of Eurasian commonalities that you see in the epics, in the Puranas, in, in Indian mythology, and then in, and also in European and uh, Western China, uh, mythology of Western China. And that is that there's a sort of a basic building block of religion, which is the propitiation of spirits in pools of water and in trees and at other sacred geographical places. And you see this all over India, the, especially with trees and especially with bodies of water, both of them. Uh, and I, I think and, and there's there's a figure there who's not necessarily a god or a godling, but is a spirit and who can be benevolent or can be malevolent, has to be propitiated uh, about what? About health, about childbirth, about basic life necessities. And I think that in this Dorga story and in this story in the Rig Veda, there's a there's a link there of a of a, a, a type of a female spirit that's connected to female blood and you know um, pregnancy, menstruation, and and I guess to some extent uh, the idea of of, of the of def- defloration, to use a weird word for the wedding night. Uh, it's kind of a complex. And, and I, I think there, there, there is some sort of deeper level, which is to say some pre-existing tradition that, would, that goes probably probably prior to the Vedas because of the way it, it sits in that Vedic, um, in that Vedic hymn uh, that, uh, that Dorga is also builds on. I think it builds on a lot of other things too, but, you know, and that, there's no way to demonstrate whether this is true or not, but it seems to me um I, it's an idea that I can't really let go of. So it's, it's, it, I'm beginning to convince myself, even if I'm not convincing anybody else. Well, it's, um, it's, uh, uh, I mean, there's so much there. One thing I will say that comes to mind is it's abundantly clear to me as a human being that, um, well, the worship of the great Hindu goddess didn't begin, uh, circa the Gupta empire with the crafting of the Devi Mahatmya. Clearly people were worshiping a mother figure since we crawled out of caves, it's just instinctive, right? We all come from the body of a woman, right? So um, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we don't see snippets of this long before Devi Mahatmya crystallizes it within the Brahmanic fold. There is, uh, I think, in the Shvetashvatar Upanishad, there is this, uh, the sage is refuting all the other um uh, all the other possibilities of like the, the ultimate cause, right? Uh, it's not Purusha. It's not um, Kala. It's not Yoni. Like who uses Yoni? Why is he talking about Yoni? Who thinks that Yoni is a supreme? What's he referring to? It's a snippet. Some try to say he means Prakriti. No, he doesn't mean Prakriti because no one thinks that Prakriti is the first cause, right? So you have these clearly, clearly the voices of uh, the Sanskrit speaking, you know, 
heirs of the Vedic tradition are the voices we have primarily, but obviously they were intermingling with a plethora of religious ideas for millennia. And it doesn't seem a far cry to me at all that some of those ideas are reverence to um, uh, form of the feminine divine that we see crystallized in the Devi Mahatmya. So keep uh, keep theorizing. I'd be interested to see what you come up with. And I definitely want to, to, to save myself a thousand years of reading and read what you read your summation of Hiltzweidel's work. <laughs> um, is there anything else you wanted to share about uh, the, the Puranas, the Indian myth or you know, the, the, uh, their utility for, for life on this planet? Well, um, I'll just say that it's easier now than it, than it was 30 years ago to get a good sense of the epic. Uh, there's the, there's the John Smith translation. There's the Bebek de Broy translation. Uh, and, and I think that now people can, and of course there's RT Dunn's podcast, people outside the field, non-experts can really start to get a sense of this text and its stories. And um, that's sort of a that's sort of a golden age of the Mahabharata for the general reader. And so I would encourage the general reader, if any, to uh, to to take a little to dip their uh, toe in the water, and uh, and start with the podcast or or with this or with um, wherever you want to start. There's there's a lot of ways now to try and and get at the Mahabharata without having to know um, epic uh, Sanskrit. And so, and I think it's well worth any investment in its in trying to um, to read it or to to, to ponder it. Fantastic! Uh, thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you. So, for those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Brian Collins, who's associate professor and chair the Department of Classics and Religious Studies at Ohio University. We've been talking about the wonderful world of Indian myth and the ways in which it might enrich our pursuit of life wisdom. Um, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran, rajbalkran.com. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and keep contemplating <laughs> the compelling tales we find in Indian myth. Take care. Mm-hmm.